Gospel of John. And once again, chapter 17. I actually thought I was going to finish this chapter last week, but I failed to do so. We'll see how today works out. Chapter 17. And if you haven't been with us, we've been going through this final farewell, if you will, this private sermon that, and teaching that Jesus gave his disciples, really beginning in chapter 13. It culminates here in chapter 17 as a high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and as we've noted, and we'll pick it up in context of where we're at, verse 20, it isn't just those 11 that remained in the room after Judas was dismissed, but for all who would believe the message that they taught and preached, it would be you. And it does apply directly to you. Jesus is going. He's going away, as he said. He's ascending to heaven. He prays in verse 24 that his disciples would then be with him. He's about to die. He's about to be laid in a tomb. He will rise again the third day. He will meet with his disciples for another 40 days on the Lord's Day, a day which we worship as the church, why we worship on Sunday. Don't celebrate the Sabbath. We have the Lord's Day. Remembrance of his resurrection. But Jesus is going, and he has already told his disciples that his going should be thought of as a time of preparation. Not total absence, he would send the Holy Spirit to be with his people. But there's a unique thing in which Christ is preparing for the church. If you remember chapter 14, those familiar words, let not your heart be troubled. And beloved, that should be a good message for all of us even this day. A lot of trouble out there. There's specifically trouble that these disciples would experience and life has been that way ever since. But the call is then to look upward, believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ. And specifically, Jesus gives this imagery of in my Father's house are many rooms. He's going to prepare a place for you. And if he goes to prepare a place for you, which by the way, he did, right? That's a historical fact. He's gone. If he did that, which he did, then... What follows is, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We kind of hinted on this to some degree, and we'll expand it a little bit more today. This is the analogy that is using of a bride and a bridegroom. Jesus is preparing a place for his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. All believers individually are the bride of Christ. Thinking on this, I thought of my own situation. Perhaps you can think of yours, if those of you who are married, or maybe even those who were in anticipation and preparation for it. I didn't have this exact cultural setting, but some things certainly applied and remembered. I remember As I prepared to be married, I found a bride, 
And believe it or not, she said yes. Don't ask her a second time, but <clears throat> anyway. But I remember just looking back at it as a young man, 20-something, the first thing I thought of and was to prepare. I made sure I had a stable job. I took a job with less money, but it had stable hours. And so I knew I could provide for her. I went out of my bachelor pad, if you will, and found a suitable dwelling, a place to bring her to. She went 100 miles away to her family home and engaged in various preparations as well. There was a time of great absence from the spring of that year. We have no idea what year it was, but anyway, a long time ago. I think it was 84. We, we, we were absent. She was in Knoxville and I was in Chattanooga. And we didn't get back together really to that winter when we were married on December 8th. Yeah, I do remember that date. December 8th, 1984, and I hope I haven't got that wrong. But any case, I do remember the time, it was, it was in my mind, it was preparing. Well, that's the analogy that is given here. In the Jewish culture, the, the bridegroom would spend a year oftentimes working on his father's house, adding a room to it in that culture to make a suitable living quarters. He had to be qualified to be able to provide for his bride and, and have a place to bring her to when they were wed. That's the imagery here in 14.2. Jesus is preparing a place. That's what he's doing right now. And guess what? He's coming again. And that's the next thing on the eschatological calendar. I don't care what kind of system you have and believe and know. Here's the deal. Christ is coming for his bride. If you're in Christ, he's coming for you. Those outside of Christ, he will be coming in great judgment. And you should be greatly in peril, in fear, and come to him in refuge and faith. There's a song that... Um, called Church's One Foundation. I think I like this phrase, theology written by Samuel Stone in the 1800s. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. I love that phraseology. From heaven he came and sought her. See, that's the imagery of Christ descending into the earth. And he comes not arbitrarily, but specifically to get his bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's the imagery that's being used here about Christ. His coming again. And the call not to allow your heart to be troubled. And he repeats it then again in this final high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And our text will be once again from verse 24, where he reminds his disciples simply this, that he desires for you, the bride of Christ, to be with him. I hope you desire to be with Christ. But I can tell you in his holy prayer, high priestly prayer, it's an amazing thing for him to say, I desire to be with you. 
I understand why I would want to be with him. But why he would want to be with me is beyond my imagination. But I respond in great joy and thanksgiving and praise. Well, let's read that text then in its context. If you're in John chapter 17, we'll begin at verse 20, where the shift is a reminder that this is beyond that room. It applies here in this room as well. He says, I don't ask for these only, but for all also for those who will believe in me through their word. By the way, that's how somebody comes to faith in Christ. You preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, they will respond in faith. His prayer is that they would be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world might know that you have sent me and loved them even as you love me. 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. O Father, I do indeed pray this prayer of Christ. We're thankful that we have been made known your name and that Christ continually intercedes for us to make it known. I pray that we would continue to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, that indeed our affections for you would increase, that our union with Christ would be renewed afresh daily, that the joy and the peace, the love, the satisfaction that we have in Christ will be a great delight here as we anticipate our soon reunion with Christ our Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I looked at just this one section in closing out, if you remember, this Christ says he's going to heaven. It's preliminary part as I mentioned he's going to prepare a place for his bride and he's going to come again so the questions that I have that we wanted to address I addressed the first one last week and that is who's going who's going the text is clear of who's going he mentions it once again those whom you have given me 24 That's who's going. Christ died for and atoned for the sins of his bride. He has come from heaven to wash his bride in his blood, to make her pure 
so that she can come and be with him. This is in systematic theology what we would might refer to as the definite atonement. David Gibson in his article, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, and that song as well, but in the book, he writes, this is, a be- this is beautiful because it tells a story of the warrior son who comes to earth to slay his enemy and rescue his father's people. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, a loving bridegroom who gives himself for his bride, and a victorious king who lavishes the spoils of his conquest on the citizens of his realm. It's powerful because it displays the glory of divine initiative, accomplishment, application, and consummation in the work of salvation. The Father sends the Son who bore our sins in his body on the tree, and the Spirit has sealed the adoption and guarantees our inheritance in the future kingdom of light. This doctrine states that the death of Jesus Christ, the triune God intended to achieve the redemption of every person given to him, that is to the Son, by the Father in eternity past, and to apply those accomplishments of his sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. The death of Christ was intended to win the salvation of God's people alone. That's who's going. The second question then, okay, well, where are we going? (laughs) I think Thomas asks that earlier in the Gospel of John. They say, well, we don't know where we're going. Where are we going? Where is heaven? And then I noted here, rather than focus on the place, but rather the person, and I'll explain. We know that our natural inclination when we talk about heaven, and it's understandable, and I think rightly so, that we would think upward. Jesus described coming to earth as descending from above, right? Descending from heaven and then returning to above. And actually that physically happened, if you, I'll read it for you. In Acts chapter 1, there's a record of it in the historical account. After Jesus finished his time in his post-resurrection appearances, Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, they were looking on and he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of, the, out of their sight. So he's moving above. And while they were gazing into heaven, that's the realm in which you could actually see as you look upward, as they were gazing, he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and the men, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They saw him. It was clear. They didn't miss it. They, they saw it. And the imagery, of course, is going up or above, and so that imagery is right. Okay, so how far away then, if it's physically up, if you will? Well, it has to be beyond what we might think of space. Space, from our perspective, from our vantage point, seems to be infinite and no end. And I, I looked up a couple of things, not to bore you with it, but it is amazing. 
If you were to travel with the current technology that we have now just to a planet that was close by, Mars, you know how long it would take a human being to do that? About nine months. That's a lot of space travel. That's a lot of time. That's just to Mars. Then I looked up the closest star then to the Earth. They're in the Alpha Centauri system. These, there's two main stars there, A and B, they call them, a binary pair, if you will, essentially together. They're an average, it says, of 4.3 light years from Earth. Now, it takes light 186,000 miles per second to get there. So what's the difference? Dif- distance? Well, I'm not that good at math, but from what I'm told, it ta- it's about 25 trillion miles. At current space traveling at ships at 25,000 miles an hour, some have calculated, and you can tell me later, about a billion hours, <laughs> maybe 100,000 years. You can't live long enough to get to the closest star. It's beyond our imagination. When he says he's lifted up into heaven, of course, there is this physical sense, but beyond that... Certainly, it's communicating a metaphysical sense as well. Jesus would say that in the Gospel of John, and I've alluded to it before. I'll give you one of the references, for example, in 8.23, where he's talking to those that are in opposition to him. He simply says, I am from above and you are from this world. I am not from this world. So the contrast then is two different systems, if you will. A distinction between that which is described as heaven and that which is described as earth. A world that is other than this world. A world that would be above and beyond this world. This is is, um, heaven. But I'd argue simply this, that if you look at our text in 724, yes, you can say it's above in many ways, physically as well as metaphysically. But beyond that, notice in our text where Jesus is going to take his bride. He says that they might be with me, 1724, where I am reading a commentator and he asked a young child where heaven is and sometimes you can get some pretty profound answers theologically from children they just simply said wherever Jesus is I think that's a good way to think about it rather than be enamored in the physical place be enamored with that very person Beloved, this is what we're really longing for. I challenge you, all mankind, not some sort of great lodging, some sort of utopian place, but rather to be with God and specifically the very person of Jesus Christ. That's what's in our heart. They don't even know it. Mankind was made in the image of God to be in communion and fellowship, to be with him. And if you read the beginning of the Bible, you know what happened. In the rebellion, the fellowship was broken off. 
But as Norman Geiser would say, the God's image is defaced, not erased. And that is, every human being bears an image of God, imaging forth. That's, that's where this, uh, the beauty in humanity, even unregenerate humanity, comes from. It is certainly defaced in many ways. It's certainly not holy, holy, holy. That is perfect in all its attributes. Absolutely not. Defaced by sin. But not completely gone. And you'll see glimpses of that glory. What I'm arguing is simply this. That there is an innate desire for mankind to be with God. Many think their innate desire is to get this or that or do this or go there or have this and so forth. Those are just shadows of the, really, of the reality of what we really want. The substance is Jesus Christ. And if you know him, you can proclaim that great truth. It is what every heart is longing for ultimately to be with Christ. Those longings from a fallen man then are sought in the wrong places. And that's why scripture does say no one seeks after him. They're looking for the wrong source. The source of satisfaction, if you will, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Those who have been given eyes to see this truth, ears to hear it, respond in a different way. Like how Paul discusses this in, in Philippians chapter 1. He just simply says this. For me to live is Christ. To die then would be gain. If I live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me, yet which I choose not to tell. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I challenge you to examine your own heart. Is for you to live as Christ? This is the heart of the response of somebody who has seen and known Christ. They want to be with him. I'm not suggesting you want to give up what God has called you to do. Of course, Paul was called to do his work. He loved the people that he was with, the churches that he was with, all that he was called to do. And yet, there's this other compelling desire in his heart to be with Christ. Heaven is not so much about a place, beloved. It isn't even actually about the people that are there, your loved ones that you long to be with. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. I reminded myself that when my best friend died. He happened to be my father. And I think the desire, his birthday was the other day, August the 5th. I'll never remember. I never forget it, I meant to say. Um, I'm always reminded of it all day long. But my real desire is not to reunite with him, as great as that would be. I'd love to hear his voice again, his encouragement, his wry smile. We miss a lot of that, don't you? You lost a loved one before. Can I tell you this? That is just a glimpse of Christ. That's who you really long for. But you haven't seen him in his fullness. Scripture does talk about this, and this is where we'll see what time I have. We'll look in the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Look to 22, Revelation 22. The book of Revelation, by the way, it means the explanation, the disclosure. Hence, that's the idea of Revelation. This isn't some weird, fanciful thing. Symbols are ha- have to be used here because what it's describing is beyond your ability to understand. But the symbols correspond to a reality. Don't be hard-pressed to describe and define it beyond that, but that's what it's pointing to is an actual reality. In Revelation 22, here you get a glimpse of this place called heaven. The place for which Paul wants to depart and be, where he says that absent from the body, for those that are in Christ, is what? Present with the Lord? Well, what's that going to look like? Well, fortunately, we're told. In, in a symbolic way, I understand that. But it's the only way to describe something magnificent in our words and terminology. Verse 1 of 22. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Do you remember... A tree of life in the garden. You get the connection. Yeah. With its 12 kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer would there be anything accursed. But the throne of God. And of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Worship is the. Response of great joy and praise. You cannot help yourself and euphoria. You've been to a great glorious event before or a circumstance. And perhaps you were so excited. People had to physically hold you down. It's happened to me before. I'm sure it's happened to you. That's the imagery here. Worship isn't something that you order people to do. It is the response. When you see even something as common as the beautiful sunset, which you've seen many times, and yet how often does somebody point, oh, look at that! And your response isn't, oh, I've seen that before. (laughs) Your response is, wow, that's beautiful. Can I tell you, that's just a glimpse Of what awaits those that are in Christ Jesus? You have no idea. And whatever joys and experiences that you have with people as well. Is just a glimpse of what what awaits. Remember the Apostle Paul who was transported to this heavenly realm. Explains it kind of in a... um, backwards way, if you will. He says, I'm not sure at all how it all happened. I don't know if I physically got there or if it was a vision, whether it was in the body or out of the body. He says, I don't know. God knows. But one thing's for sure, 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says, he heard things that cannot be told that which man cannot utter. 
I think the emphasis there is it was, it's beyond words. It's beyond what is expressible. Here, it, some of it is expressed in this imagery in Revelation. But it's so much more than that. And the imagery points to this glorious sight, this place. But the most notable thing will not be whatever the tree of life might look like, this bright crystal river flowing from the throne of God, however that works, the fruit bearing, all of it beautiful. But you know what is, will be the center of the attention? Can I submit to you this? Jesus Christ. Do you notice four, verse 4? They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or the sun. For the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Remember that next time you see how beautifully brilliant a sunset or sunrise is. You won't need it anymore. It is just a shadow of the reality that awaits those that are in Christ. When he comes to get his bride, they will see him face to face. Imagine a beautiful wedding. I remember mine. Beautiful decorated room, flowers, great fragrance, candles, music, many guests all decorated in their finest apparel, beautiful song. I was wearing a white tux with tails. Only time I ever wore that. In his commentary in Revelation 22, Samuel Rutherford states, The bride takes not but a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she does in her bridegroom. So we in the life to come shall not be so much accepted with the glory that goes about us as with our bridegroom's joyful face and presence. In the tradition in which I grew up in, which has now gone away, and that's fine, Think culturally things can change, but some of the imagery done in a wedding ceremony, as I mentioned before, is to image this picture of Christ and his bride, Christ and the church. And if I remember this correctly, my wife had a veil. And it wasn't lifted until we were married. Can I suggest to you that right now you have a veil? You can see, oh, there's see images and see different things, but you're not seeing it clearly. And it won't come until this state when they will see his face. That is, face to face, clearly seen. Paul says this in Corinthians chapter 13. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, that's what he's talking about. 
I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's a different experience. The veil that separates even those that are regenerate will be completely lifted. God told Moses in Exodus 33, if you remember, you can't see my face and live. Why not? Because of sin. Because remember as we sung, as we started the service, God is what? Holy, holy, holy. He is perfect. And to see him in his fullness would blind you. Here, they see his face in the perfection of who Christ is. Why? Because there's no sin. It's all been taken care of by Christ. The Apostle John will put this, phrase it this way in his epistle, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Note that. If you're in Christ, we pray our Father, right? We're adopted into the family of God. We are children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's something coming beyond this. But we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the imagery of face to face. In the glorified state, a perfected state an absolutely perfect state made righteous by Jesus Christ. Heaven is about seeing the very face of God clearly. Everything else now is dim. The beauty of God's glory will radiate so brightly that you will be drawn into this eternal bliss and beloved. I have no words to describe this. Only bare symbols to approximate this truth. Well, what is it going to be like when we get there? That's my second question. Where is it? It's with Christ. In his fullness, face to face. All right. So what is it going to be like? What are we going to do? We're we going to play harps? You're going to get to see the fullness of Christ's glory. That's the purpose. Back to our text. Notice verse 24. These people that have been given to Christ are going to be with him where he is in the fullness in a glorified state. For what purpose? And here's the phrase, 1724. To, note this, to see my glory. I know that it might sound like religious words to many. Maybe it doesn't mean much, but you really have to stop and think about this. That's the greatest gift that he could give you. Because there's nothing greater. I know you think of a lot of things that you want to clutch onto that you think are great. They're not. They pale by comparison. They would be soon released from your hands. To get a glimpse of his glory. That's where it's going. We have been created, as I've already mentioned, to delight in the glory of God's beauty. 
of who he is. It will only be manifested this way through Jesus Christ uniquely. The earth is full of his glory, even now. But we see it dimly. Veiled, if you will. Bursting through even that veil of sin. It is so brilliant. Even light, for example, creates a spectrum too wonderful to describe. That's what heaven's like. It is the fullness of God's glory on display. Psalm 1611 In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know joy. You've experienced joy. But I can assure you of this. You don't know what fullness of joy is. You don't know what it is with the veil lifted. With sin gone. You've enjoyed pleasure. You have many. And all good gifts come from God. And that's why we respond in great thanksgiving to him. But I assure you this. You have not experienced the greatest pleasure. All of it is muted diminished to some degree by sin. Let's go to Revelation 5 and I'll finish with this. Revelation 5. Here is an image of Christ's glory in Some phraseology, I recommend spending time thinking through, perhaps reading again this passage. After John's vision of heaven in chapter 4, he continues to describe what he sees in Revelation 5. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is intended, this is intended for us to stop and think. Who has a sovereign authority over all things? Well, Verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. So there's an examination who's worthy. No one, that's the point. And so John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, this is why you need some elders around. Occasionally they can point to the truth. Stop. They're just getting you to think about who's worthy. There's no one worthy save one. And I'll tell you who they are. Elders represent the church, of course. Here, symbolically, he says verse 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You know who this is speaking of. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. It is Christ the Lord who has conquered. 
Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, then I saw a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into the earth. Here this idea that the lamb then that was slain and yet has these horns of power, great power, and then this sovereign ability over in perfection over all things. This is who Christ is. This is who you're going to see. And this is a manifestation of just a glimpse of his glory here. And verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. Which, by the way, your prayers don't go unanswered. The prayers of the saints are here and integral in the glorious worship of Christ. And so what did they do? Well, they sang a new song. Uniquely different. In a different way. Face to face with the glory of Christ. Here's what they sing. Worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then beyond that, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what heaven is like. A A resounding worship of Christ the worthy one. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. That's the purpose of heaven. Is the worship of Christ. Can I tell you this? Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You will either do it now in response to seeing him who he is, or you will do so in judgment, but they will all praise the very worthy one who is Christ. It displays in the fullness of his glory. Just a few mentions here of it. This isn't all. This is some of it. His power. His wealth, his wisdom, his might, his honor, his glory, and blessings. That's what heaven is about. Heaven's about Christ. I want you to turn in a hymn book. I'm going to change things up a little bit. I don't normally do it this way. But I want to fall down and worship. I want to worship in song. And so, 
I'm going to interject this at this point. 263 in your hymn book. And I'm going to have the ladies come forward. I, I know I'm messing you up. You guys have the violins. Can you play this hymn? And Amber, play it for us. 263. Because I'm going to worship in song. Now, I'm going to actually ask, ask even Blake because if I mess this up, I'd rather blame him. So, Blake, come on up here and help me. Play this through one time, worthy is the Lamb. And what you want to think about, play it through one time, if y'all will, with the violins and all, and why they're doing it. Look at the text of Scripture. Maybe this psalm, because it's taking the text of Scripture of um, 512 here for us, and think through it, and then we'll sing it together. So I want you to think and focus on the words as, as they play it, and then we'll have Blake lead us in it.
a glimpse of heaven and hear his saints saying, truly Christ is worthy. And I pray, beloved, that is the testimony of your heart. That is the heart of a believer, of someone who has had a glimpse of Christ. Their response is going to be worship and praise forevermore. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful that you sent your son to descend below, to take on human flesh, to live among us, to bear our sin on his body on the tree, to redeem us from our sin, to send the Spirit to indwell within us, to seal us for that day of redemption. I pray for, your, for myself and for your saints. Indeed, Lord, would you cause us to have greater affections to be with Christ? May we commune with Christ in the reality of his word now and look forward to that soon return and reunion in perfection. I pray, Father, that the cares of this world would slip away from those things that might grasp our attention and drag us away from the joy that you have intended for us even now in this life. Jesus Christ is worthy. We are so unworthy and so rejoicingly thankful that you have brought us in to your family. I pray for anyone outside that they would get a glimpse of Christ's glory, confess him as Lord, and receive the great joy in Christ. I pray for us who have seen that beauty of who Christ is, that we would be increasingly compelled to show others to look, to see, to receive, and to live. I pray that your blessing would be upon your people. Grant us great blessings and joy and hope in Christ alone. Amen. Jerry will have a benediction for us at this time and then we'll be dismissed.